This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. So let's get into it. So many headlines. Delighted to have with us Dr. William Moss, Executive Director of the International Vaccine Access Center, Professor in the Departments of Epidemiology, International Health, and Molecular Microbiology and Immunology at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And of course, the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Dr. Moss with us on the phone in Baltimore. I wanted to lay it all out for everyone, Dr. Moss. First of all, thank you so much for being here. Um, I do feel like there's so much going on, and I feel like it's it's some optimism, and yet, again, a reminder that we are still in a global pandemic. That's worrisome. Yes, it is, and thank you for having me, Carol. Um, we are seeing record numbers uh, of cases in the United States. We're seeing uh, high numbers of deaths, hospitals that are uh, really being stretched to the limits, and that that pattern is going to continue for the next couple of months as we head into winter. Uh, more uh, more people being indoors, more people interact indoors into the holiday season. But as you said, there we also have uh, some optimism with the reports uh, of the vaccine efficacy from the Pfizer vaccine being much higher than people expected, ninety percent. Recognizing that uh, we only know about this through a press release presumably from uh, a review of the data by an independent safety monitoring board. But what we still do not know, right, as, as these headlines come out from a Pfizer, we're anticipating some news from Moderna as well. That's promising. We don't know what how long protection lasts. We don't know right. exactly what these vaccine ultimately will do, right? That's right. There are still a number of uh, outstanding questions. I have uh, confidence we'll be able to answer these questions. But what we know now is that in this late stage of these phase three clinical trials uh, with the the results from the Pfizer vaccine demonstrating, showing, you know, high protection. Ninety percent of people who got the vaccine were protected compared to the placebo group. Um, But as you said, there are still a number of outstanding questions. For example, we don't know what the vaccine efficacy is in older adults or people with underlying medical conditions that place them at higher risk for severe disease of COVID-19. That'll come out of the trial results, but we don't know that now. We don't know how long this protection is going to last. We hope it's going to last a year, years or more, um, but we just don't know. And that's going to take further follow-up of these participants in the trials until we really know uh, how long the protection lasts. We also won't know whether there are long-term side effects. Um, Again, we need the longer follow-up. We need the full trial data to be able to see that. But right now, what we'll be able to say is in the short term, these vaccines look protective. These vaccines look safe. At least that's what I'm hoping for. 
Well, yes, fingers crossed, right? Dr. Moss, so what happens next? Um, you know, I do feel like we are all learning about, I've, I've said it before, how the sausage is made in terms of vaccine <laughs> development, right? It, we're yeah. all talking about it so much. And I know that there's some nervousness about the rapidity of the process, but we are learning about how it all happens. So what's kind of next here, whether it's the Pfizer vaccine, whether it's Moderna's vaccine, what are yeah. you anticipating how things play out over the next few weeks, few months? Yes, and you're exactly right. I don't think there's ever been such public scrutiny of the vaccine development and uh, evaluation process. What we anticipate happening next is that a company such as Pfizer or Moderna will need to put uh, submit an application to the Food and Drug Administration for emergency use authorization so that these vaccines could uh, be made available to high-risk individuals uh, as early as possible. What the, uh, the Food and Drug Administration has uh, put forth as guidelines is that the trials need to wait until at least half of the participants have had two months of follow-up. Hmm. Uh, Pfizer anticipates that that's going to happen uh, later this month, third, fourth week of uh, November, and then they will be able to submit uh, their application for an emergency use authorization to the FDA. The, the, uh, all the trial data will then be reviewed uh, by an independent body. Hopefully, data will be made public. Hopefully, this whole process will be transparent. We need that for the public's trust. Um, and I would anticipate uh, shortly after the application and this review process that there would be, assuming the safety and efficacy data hold up, um, that will have an emergency use authorization. Pfizer says that they'll have 40, 50 million doses ready to go um, and, uh, by the, uh, the end of this year. That's been one of the wow. things that's allowed this process to be accelerated, that the manufacturing has, has gone on with the studies. And nothing changes, right? The drug is the drug. So it's not like, wait a minute, oops, we have to tinker with the vaccine a little bit, right? What it is, and that's why they've been able to vaccine. I mean, to, to manufacture yeah. the vaccine. Exactly. So, we, you know, there would have not be any any kind of changes to the vaccine mm -hmm. that was used uh, during the trials. They've, they've scaled up that manufacturing. So bottom line, emergency use, Dr. Moss, you anticipate by the end of the year, especially for those who really need it? I, I think so. I, again, uh, assuming that the safety and efficacy data hold up that we're mm -hmm. hearing about through this press release, I would expect by the end of this year and, and perhaps earlier in December uh, that we would have an emergency use authorization and begin to uh, then, then we could begin to provide the vaccine uh, to the high risk individuals that may be healthcare workers uh, and older adults. So one of the things I wanted to ask you is there was a story Dr. Moss, that talked specifically, and let me just find it, it had to do with, I think, minks and just mm. what that meant, the COVID explosion in mink. Our headline was that it's a danger sign for vaccines. Um, tell me what we need to know and what this might mean. Well, what, what we want to know, it, it is a fascinating story, is whether this virus can be transmitted uh, among animals uh, that are, you know, potentially uh, introduced from humans to animals. We know that, that this virus probably started in animals, perhaps bats, uh, and then was transmitted to humans. Um, but finding the virus circulating in other wild animals 
um, makes it, you know, raises concerns about our ability to really rid ourselves of this virus. Um, would, the virus can mutate uh, and change its genetic structure within animals, mm-hmm. um, but it also animals, wild animals can also serve as a reservoir of the virus, potentially sending the virus back into human populations. That's what we would be concerned about. We don't have evidence of that yet, but that's why that was such uh, uh, important news. So if that was the case, that animals can serve as a reservoir to send the virus back to humans, it just sounds terrible. Does that mean that we could potentially have a world where we are just constantly dealing with this? Yes. And even without an animal reservoir, uh, you know, another, a, a new animal reservoir or another animal reservoir, we still may be living with this virus for a long time. It's clear that we're going to be able to eradicate this virus from uh, human transmission. But if we're able to achieve, and, and we, you know, that's potentially possible with a highly effective vaccine that, that stops uh, transmission, um, having an animal reservoir just makes that so much more difficult um, because potentially uh, we could have new human infections. Okay. I'm just sitting with that. So what I'm trying to, (laughs) yeah, right, just kind of like layer it on. You know, the other thing I guess I've been trying to get my head around is, I mean, the virus that we deal with, the seasonal flu virus that we deal with, right, it mutates, right? And we're constantly trying to, we come up with new vaccines, you can alter it and kind of keep ahead of it. As a COVID-19, well, it's COVID-19 because of when it started getting, you know, coming in, but this particular strain of coronavirus, right. as it mutates, how quickly is it or how easily is it to adapt an existing vaccine to keep up with the mutations? Right. That's a really important question. And, you know, influenza is a very different type of virus. Um, it has the ability to kind of swap out pieces of itself, uh, mm-hmm. its, its genetic, uh, its genome, um, and that allows it to make big changes. That's why we get pandemic influenza. But even smaller changes are, are why we need to have a different uh, vaccine each year. Corona, the SARS coronavirus 2 does mutate. All viruses mutate. All, all viruses uh, change their genetic structure. But we, we haven't seen that. We don't see the degree of mutation and change, uh, certainly that we see with uh, influenza viruses. And just to give you another example, the measles, the measles vaccine that we use in most of the world and in the United States, that came from a wild-type measles virus isolate from the 1950s, and we have not needed to change our measles vaccines over time. So I think that the coronavirus will be closer to measles than to influenza in terms of our need to uh, constantly update or uh, reinvent our, our coronavirus vaccines. Okay, so that's a good thing, <laughs> right? Yes, that's a good thing, yes. So what do you anticipate? I mean, do you feel like you have some visibility? I felt like the world got some visibility Monday because of Pfizer and we felt a little bit more confident. Um, Just got about 50 seconds left. Do you feel like a year from now we're able to open up society more than, you know, than we have been? Or is it a shorter time frame or a longer time frame? What do you think? Yes, I'm optimistic that we'll be able to uh, that a vac- we'll be able to have enough vaccine, probably different types of vaccines, and be able to get these to the general public 
probably in mid to late uh, 2021, and that that will help us begin to open up. But I think it's very important for people to know that that's not going to happen in January, in February, in March. We're going to have, we're facing a, a, a very difficult winter, I think, here in the United States, and I'm sure in Europe. Um, and we're going to need to continue to to wear masks and and distance and wash our hands and all those me- those public health measures mm-hmm. um, until later next year. I'm glad you said that masks and social distancing because I just want everyone to remember. Um, and we've been talking to a lot of folks, right? It's multifaceted in getting this under control. Um, Dr. Moss, brilliant executive director of the International Vaccine Access Center at Johns Hopkins, joining us on the phone from Baltimore. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. All right, do you want to get into something that kicks off on Monday? We're talking about the Bloomberg New Economy Forum. It kicks off virtually four days of incredible global global programming with a blockbuster lineup of leaders. And they cover kind of all the global concerns that we need to be talking about. It's also, by the way, our cover story this week. Let's get into it with Business Week Economics Editor, Christina Lindblad. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio and also with us, Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. He is on the phone in Brooklyn. And Jill, you have an array of stories in the magazine that relate to the Bloomberg New Economy Forum. That's right. And, and really, Christina was the architect of this little package of stories, and, and uh, she did a great job. And that was one of the reasons that um, I wanted to have her on the show today. And obviously, we, t- we talked about Zell yesterday, which yeah. is um, a, I thought just a phenomenally interesting one um, in regards to Venezuela and sort of how uh, people there are making use of it to do something that you know the company and, and you know Zell never intended to have happen, um, and that's just sort of an example I think of the approach that Christina used throughout the issue is sort of like how do we tap into some of the, these biggest challenges that that we face that humanity faces and obviously it, that kind of starts with the pandemic since that is the you know one of the stories of the year for sure. Um, Christina, can you? that and kind of lay out um, what, what you learned about this story by Jason Gale and the long haulers. Yeah, thanks, Carol, for having me on. I, I've been interested in the long haulers for a while because I think we were also focused for every day still on infection rates and hospitalizations and, and, and that, but also to understand that there are people who some of them have symptoms that are so bad that they're almost disabled. They cannot go back to work, and it's been several months, and, and that the scientific and health community can't answer the questions that they have about whether they're ultimately going to be done with this. You know, How long is, are they going to have these symptoms? Well, and it's interesting, Christina, considering... Um, you know, I think there's sometimes some populations being kind of cavalier about COVID-19. And you have to remember that, you know, some people get it. They don't have a lot of, um, you know, leftover effects, if you will. And then other people get it and it stays with them, as you just said, for a really long time. It's just a reminder that this virus impacts us all in very different ways. That's right. Actually, one of the things that we found is that sometimes people who had no symptoms or very light symptoms actually had the biggest problems with, you know, the sort of long-term viral um, hangover, you would say. And, you know, the the other hangover that um, we're all going to kind of be faced with here is the economic implications of this, because COVID can have multi-organ impacts and implications. Right. 
and we're also starting to see that there will be an impact in terms of disability. What, what does that mean for all of us, Christina? Well, that's, I think, we talked to several researchers who are trying to answer just that question and something they're starting to grapple with. I mean, there have been comparisons to polio, for instance, to try to um, have long-range estimates of what would have be like if there had been no vaccines that you know they came in at the right time and i think that's going to be important here obviously the vaccine you know not to have more infected population but we still will have to answer the questions of how we help people who um, have damaged their organs their hearts um, and sometimes need um, not just pulmonary rehabilitation but they're also having but people describe brain fog as <clears throat> So, Christina, I want to talk about um, Tom Orlick of Bloomberg Economic Story, uh, which sort of talks about how they've done, they've crunched a bunch of numbers to try and figure out sort of what the path of, of global economies is going to look like over the next couple of years and decades. And, and they go so far as to say, right about 2035, we're going to see a shift in terms of um, free market economies being overtaken by by state-driven ones. Um, can you talk about wh where else he goes in that story and what it means for, for us? Can I just say, too, this is a must-read. Like, everybody has to read this to kind of understand, I think, where our world is going, Christina. Yeah, I think he did a good job of, of laying out well, where we're going to be at mid-century and, and to put numbers to something that we've been tracking for a while, which is the, the sort of, some people have said the Asian century, you know, like that this, this century belongs to Asia. And so overall emerging markets um, at the start of the century were about 20% of GDP, but, you know, through by 2050, there'll be more than half, almost 60%. And China will be by far, you know, the biggest um the biggest part of that and we have this great graphic that sort of shows the reordering of the top 10 economies you know and basically china bumps the u.s off the number one slot india bumps japan out of number three slot and you know and you see sort of the kind of youthful developing markets you know moving up and the sort of aging economies moving down I gotta. I have to say, like I said, this is a must read. But there's a line in the story. It's optimistic to assume that all these transitions will be smooth. Ha! Like it's going to be uncomfortable, right? As these changes happen globally. Well, we've seen in the last four years, and even now, when Biden, you know, may, will assume office, that. that um, the, the big power struggles that are going on, right? They're going on in the fields of trade, of IP, you know, and all these different dimensions. I mean, there's this idea that, you know, that it's, there's bound to be conflict when there are these, these sort of um, disruptions in, in, the, in the sort of established order. Um, Christine, I also want to uh, talk about the other uh, elephant in the room, hmm. which is climate change. And I know Eric Rostin was on a uh, program yesterday to talk about the story, uh, the wildfire story uh, in California, which is this, you know, really a case study in w how bad wildfires can get. And as climate change amplifies these things and make it worse, it's, it's it means millions of people uh, find themselves with fires at their front door when, you know, just a few decades ago that wasn't a problem. Uh, I want want to talk about the angle that was really in that story around insurance and, and what it means for uh, that industry. 
I think what was really interesting about that story is, is to focus on the modeling of risk, which is integral to the insurance industry. So for flooding, for example, there's been years um, of work already done on what areas and homes are at risk. But for fire, this is a much more emerging uh, field. Maybe not so much emerging, but that there's so many factors, more factors at work. Um, that we talked, for example, to people who are building these models and saying, oh, I can never actually finish building this model because then we realize, you know, there's this other factor that we didn't account for properly. Well, this, these models form the foundation of, of kind of, of how the insurance industry looks at the risks that it faces in that state. And we have this great anecdote about one um, scientist who delivered a presentation, and in the audience were several representatives from the insurance industry. His presentation was about what happens in fires that break out in canyons. Yeah. Um, and, and the people after came up to him and said, that's it, we're done. Like, we're, we're getting out of the state. It's like, if, if you know what I mean? If the, yeah. the, they're just such crazy, scary scenarios. That yeah. It's just, you know, things that we've never thought we'd be dealing with, but you're right, and there's so many implications of it. Um, great stuff, as always. Bloomberg Business Week economics editor, Christina Lindblad, and of course our Bloomberg Business Week editor, Joel Weber, uh, joining us. The Bloomberg New Economy Forum, it does kick off on Monday. It's virtually, it's four days of global programming, a blockbuster agenda, a lineup of leaders in business, government, finance, the markets, healthcare, climate, you name it. And they are dealing with everything from the coronavirus to climate change, really the biggest challenges humanity faces. I'm looking forward to a panel I'm doing later in the week that's all about how did we get here when it comes to a virus. It's amazing in terms of the lineup. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. We're going to stay with politics for a moment. We just talked with Jonathan Bernstein about Joe Biden's pick uh, for uh, his White House chief of staff. But we want to get to what seems to feel like some a little bit of a political shift in uh, the, or I should say, a shift in the political winds. Yeah, I'll get that out. Um, at least when it comes to President Trump's support from some key conservatives. Back with us on what's going on and why, Bloomberg News politics editor Wendy Benjaminson. She is back with us on the phone from D.C. I'm just trying to keep up with the headlines. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you. <laughs> um, what's going on with the conservatives and kind of coming out like it's time to call this election, uh, basically back off? It's At least that's what it feels like, Wendy. It feels like that, Carol. Hi. And yet hey. it's not quite that yet. Okay. What they're saying is that he should be getting an intelligence briefing every day, which every president-elect gets, um, a secure intelligence briefing of what's going on in the world, because he's going to take over on January 20th, and they sort of like to know what's going on before they you know, get into the Oval Office. Um, because the Trump administration is blocking his access to the normal transition activities, Joe Biden, who even though he's a former vice president, is now a private citizen, yet president-elect, um, he doesn't have access to classified information, and they will not make those available. So some conservative senators, especially those on the Senate Intelligence Committee, are saying, come on, at least give him the intelligence briefings. In case he's president, we think it's better for the world that he has, you know, deep insight into what's going on. Well, we as Americans, should we be concerned that he's not? I don't think terribly concerned. Okay. Biden himself said that at a news conference that he held on Wednesday, uh, Tuesday, excuse me, he said he would it would be nice if he was getting it, but yeah. he's confident that he'll be able to catch up. Of course, that's him trying to create a contrast. 
uh, Biden has been very careful lately to project this calm, everything's okay, don't worry sort of attitude while Trump is, um, while President Trump is rage tweeting. So it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's a strategy, of course. Well, what's going on in the White House? I got to ask you, uh, I think one of our top red stories is about kind of Fox News or Fox, the shares are down because there's concerns about, you know, President Trump, what he's going to do next and maybe create a competing network or be part of a competing network. Like, what's going on here? I even saw some um, betting markets are suggesting he's going to replace Alex Trebek as host of Jeopardy. I don't uh, think that I don't will think happen. So either. That wasn't an official official prediction. Um, what's going on in the White House? Anyone's guess is as good as mine. We um, no one has seen. I mean, no one outside the White House has seen the president mm. um, except for that golf outing over the weekend. Oh, and he went to the memorial, but he hasn't had any public statements. He hasn't had any public um, activities or invited reporters and photographers into the Oval Office like he normally does. So, you know, we all we know about what he's thinking and doing is from is from his tweets um, and a few executive orders that he's been putting out. Um, but otherwise, yeah, he's um, he's just quietly doing his job. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, what's interesting, going back to, you know, some of the Republicans, I do wonder, Wendy, I mean, do they want, essentially, can they get an assist? Do they need an assist from President Trump when it comes to those outstanding Georgia Senate races? Can he help them in terms of winning those seats? Oh, I think he could. I think he could. And there are um, there is a lot of money on both sides going down to Georgia. Um, there is a lot of um, the Democrats will be fighting for those seats very hard. Um, and so will the Republicans. Whether Donald Trump himself will go down to Georgia and help them campaign, it's hard to tell. If he has decided that he's lost the election, I mean, if he comes to the realization that he's lost the election before then, he might not bother. It's not really in his personality to work for the good of the party when it doesn't benefit him personally. I'm not trying to be subjective. I just, uh, after observing him for four years. Um, So I'm not sure he would would bother trying to help form a Republican Senate if he's not going to be president. Um, Well, and then then what's kind of the role of Mitch McConnell in all of this, right? Because I think I was... I don't know. I think I was surprised initially when Mitch McConnell, who had been quiet, you know, and then came out and, and basically said, you know, the president has a right to a recount. And I, and I think that's fair, right? Anybody who yes. sees a close race has, has the right. But where's Mitch McConnell? What's going on behind the scenes? What are you guys hearing? <laughs> well, the Senate Majority Leader is, um, he is right that the president has a right to a recount. Anyone does. Um, I think, you know, that he is, he's also saying there has to be evidence. He's saying there shouldn't be any, you know, far-fetched claims. Um, and I think privately, my guess is, and this is just a guess, is that behind the scenes, he's thinking it's over and he's making plans to, um, but he's making plans to have a Republican Senate mm-hmm. that will stop um, President-elect Biden's most progressive instincts. But it's still up in the air, right, until those races happen. It's up in the air until those races happen, right? They, they right now, I think it's forty-nine, forty-nine in the Senate. It's pretty so, remarkable. if if the Democrats get one more, then Vice President Kamala Harris could be the tiebreaker. If they get two more, then they wouldn't even need her. But the, if Republicans get one more, yeah. then um, they have the majority. You know, it is interesting too, as you said, the president being kind of quiet. But you know, we had a headline we just mentioned a little while ago, a little while 
ago, excuse me, uh, about the president banning investment in some Chinese companies. So, you know, and he's talking about a military tie. So he's still doing things. And, and we've, I, yeah. you guys and your team put out that there are things he will do, can do, that will upset certainly the global community or upset financial markets. Oh, absolutely, Carol. I mean, he is president until noon on January 20th. So he can do a tremendous number of things that he's and and any president, I mean, right. he can do whatever he, that he would normally do until January 20th. Normally, they begin to work sort of in concert with each other. They try not to just mess things up before the other guy comes in. Right, right. But, um, you know, we'll see what happens this year. All right. So, Wendy, I mean, we're in a COVID world, so it's not like you can jump on a plane after all this is over and things calm down and go to the Caribbean. But I do wonder, when do you guys and your team anticipate that things start to slow down? Is it after we get through these Senate races? When is it ultimately? I mean, I know we're going to have a new administration, but I mean, once we get through still kind of these outstanding races. Right. I think really it will be when the president concedes that, uh, concedes the race. Um, You know, president elect Biden is, um, he's having calls with foreign leaders, but he's gone to his, his house on the beach for the weekend. Uh, Uh, You know, he's, he's taking, he's making appointments, but he's moving in such a sort of deliberate traditional um, way that we, we can already see the pace of the next administration will be much more like what we're used to, um, before 2016. A little normalcy would be okay. A little calm, right? I'm assuming she would have said yes. All right. Bloomberg News Politics Editor Wendy Benjaminson joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Check out all the political coverage. Uh, you can just go to the Bloomberg Terminal or check out Bloomberg.com. I'm driving in my car I turn on the radio How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. Time for the drive to the close. Quick check on where we are just with about... uh 13 minutes left in today's trading session, or about 12 minutes, actually. S&P 500, we're down 51 points, down 1.4% at 3521. Dow at 28,915. That's a decline of 480 points, down 1.6%. And you've got the NASDAQ, the outperformer, but still down, but down only about nine-tenths of 1%, a loss of 109 points. Do also want to get a check on the Treasury trade. We've got equities pretty much near their lows of the session. Big moves in equities. We've also seen some big moves when it comes comes to uh, the yields and all along the yield curve. You've got that 10-year note with a yield of uh, 0.879. You've got uh, the five-year note yielding 0.39. And taking a look at the shorter end of the yield curve, that two-year note specifically uh, down with a yield, um, I should say actually up, but the yield down to 0.17. All right, let's bring in Leslie Falconio. She runs the tactical asset allocation uh, team within uh, U.S. Fixed Income over at UBS Wealth Management, senior strategist at UBS uh, there, and joins us on the phone from Florida. It is good to have you here, Leslie, and I feel like it's really timely and topical because we're watching equity sell off, investors moving into treasuries. This trade, it was a very different trade earlier in the week. Which one is right? You know, over the long term, the earlier one of the week is right. I mean, there's, there's no question that, you know, we saw this a little bit large of a bear steep. I mean, the interest rates rose, 
the long end underperformed uh, for, for two reasons. One, we had historic supply this week, right, in mm-hmm. the tenure in the bond, and also from the news from Pfizer, too, which really pushed out and had the hopes of the end of the pandemic, which pushed out this growth and inflation outlook. So I do think that over the longer term, this bear steepener is going to be the right allocation in 2021. But right now, as expected, because yields move so high and you are going into the winter months, it's expected to have this temporary pullback. Right, exactly. So what's your advice to investors? Just kind of sit tight, just believe in that earlier, <laughs> the trade earlier in the week, and just understand that we're going to see some volatility. I, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I think I think what the point is, is that even though we don't know the exact amount of, say, the fiscal stimulus, we've had a, head, a lot of headlines on that today, mm-hmm. we do believe that it will come. It will mostly come in, you know, the first quarter. It's very difficult to say the amount, but just understand that, as we know, we've had a lot of monetary and fiscal stimulus in the system. There's a lot of liquidity in the system. We're seeing things like such as corporate spreads, high yield and investment grade corporates tighten well to pre, pre-COVID levels. So again, there's going to be these short-term sort of you know, pockets of vulnerability as the headline risk comes across with COVID, particularly as we enter the winter months. But just know with the long term, it's still for rising growth. It's still for our outlook that over the first half of 2021, you know, we'll have a vaccine that's hopefully widely disseminated. Uh, and I just want to mention, forgive me, a uh, headline crossing the Bloomberg terminal. Uh, this seems to be coming from uh, the Wall Street Journal specifically and has to do with TikTok. And let me just bring it up here again. Uh, the Commerce Department announcing a stay of the TikTok shutdown order. So again, the Commerce Department announcing a stay of the TikTok shutdown order. So basically uh, not looking to necessarily impose that specifically because this was kind of a, a doomsday uh I guess, day in terms of potentially what could happen uh, to TikTok. So look for a little bit more of a a write through on that on the Bloomberg. So um, getting back to the fixed income trade here, Leslie. So where are you finding the best opportunities within uh, the market right now? Well, you know, as I said, because of the Fed backstop, and by the way, they have a lot of dry powder left, right? They have a lot of purchasing power left. You know, they haven't used a Mm -hmm. lot of facilities that they have the ability to use. So given the fact that, you know, high yields and investment grade corporates have compressed so much to pre-COVID levels, we like the senior loan side. We like to see a low side. And mm. for two reasons. One is because we think that the floating rate asset is going to be definitely value-added as we head to 2021 and yields rise. And secondarily, that asset class has really lagged. But a lot of this liquidity, a lot of the, some of the recovery that we've seen has started to push demand. So that's one of the asset classes that we like in fixed income. Secondarily as well, we also like the tips market. You know, we think that break-even inflation rates will, will rise into 2021. We're not expecting, you know, large amounts of inflation because there are structural changes that are not going away anytime soon, whether it's demographics or technology. But we do think inflation expectations should rise as the economy reopens and the Fed stays on hold for at least the next four years. Do you really believe inflation is going to start to finally tick higher? Are you just talking about from where it's been? I think inflation expectations will tick higher, and that's, yeah. that's the difference. I mean, we don't think there's going to be this hyperinflation. But, however, with that said, I mean, the savings rate's very high. We do mm-hmm. think consumer spending will hit greater demand as we head into the second part. We are a little bit negative on the dollar. I mean, all these aspects lead to higher inflation, but not necessarily high inflation. It's just that the expectation right now is still fairly low. So that's why we like tips as a diversifier. Hey, when your team uh, gathers around uh, the virtual table there at UBS, uh, I do wonder when you think about a a Biden administration, the policies that might come down, uh, whether it's economic policies, whether it's tax policies, you know, what are you guys 
thinking that, you know, the policies that might become a reality that might impact, you know, your universe, the fixed income universe? Well, you know, on the fixed income side, I mean, listen, what we know and what we saw, right? We saw this on election day when you had this 20 basis point turn in in 10-year yields, which is the biggest volatility we had seen since March. The blue wave and the momentum traders had such a blue wave priced in with this whole fiscal stimulus that was large, therefore larger deficit, therefore larger more supply into the treasury market. You saw the spike in rates and it reversed. I mean, on the fixed income side, given the fact we could have this divided government, you know, which is expected, you know, obviously corporate taxes aren't as much of an issue. You know, large amounts of supply into the treasury market, although are still large, are just going to be rising by less. So therefore, you have more of a sort of gradual rise in interest rates. You have the ability for corporations to spend more on cap capex and worry about, you know, tax accounting because all these taxes that would have gone through, possibly the blue wave will sort of be shut down now. So it's more of the, the gridlocks and Goldilocks type of scenario in the sense that, you know, it's a small rise, but not a lot of ne- necessarily headwinds in terms of what things like taxes. So listen, today, three of the world's top central bankers warned that the prospect of a COVID-19 vaccine is just not enough to put an end to the economic challenges created by the pandemic. I mean, this is Federal Reserve Chief uh, Jerome Powell. We also had the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey and ECB President uh, Christine Lagarde um, speaking at an event. And I mean, listen, we've heard this before from central bankers. Do you have faith in global policymakers that they're going to get this right? Not global policymakers. I'm talking about, you know, policymakers, legislators, whether it's our U.S. Congress and the equivalent around the world. Well, there's no question that it has to come to the fiscal side. And we do, we do need more fiscal stimulus. I mean, you know, having power lower interest rates at the levels that we have been at is not going to incrementally make that much of a difference, right? We have, we have the mortgage rate at a 50-year at a low. So on the consumer side, that's great. So lowering interest rates any further is not going to have a huge impact. It really needs to come from a, a fiscal stimulus. And I do believe that what the policymakers will do, you know, is not sort of hike too early like they did in December of 2015. Mm-hmm. So I think that having this lower for longer will be the benefit. But there's no question that it has to come from the fiscal side because the incremental benefit of lowering interest rates, given the level we are right now, is just not going to happen no matter that much. Yeah, there's a point where, I mean, it's like, come on, guys. Um, going to yeah. leave it there. <laughs> Leslie, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Leslie Falconio, she is Senior Strategist at UBS Global Wealth Management on the phone from Florida. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.